Hey, Summit family, my name is John Muller, and I've been serving for four years as the campus pastor at our North Raleigh campus, and I'm excited because I have the privilege of transitioning into the role of campus pastor at our new Capitol Hills campus. Now, I was here today, found this guy wandering around the place trying to figure out where everything goes. Pastor you get paid to do something. That's right, that's right. And Pastor J.D. and I are here at the new Capitol Hills property, which, Lord willing, will open this October. Yeah, you know, so much has been happening over the last few months. You can see behind us that the walls are up. They're putting some of the finishing touches on the exterior. And uh, this fantastic construction team under the leadership of some of our, uh, our people here on staff is hard at work on the inside of the building. Y'all, we are so, so excited to give all, all of the Summit Churches, all the campuses, a glimpse at, at what's been going on over the last few months. Yeah, J.D., one of the things I'm the most excited about is our location here. We are right off the Capitol Boulevard exit of 540 and with this great location we are positioned to reach the community that we are in. We believe that we followed the Holy Spirit to right here at this place and we believe he is going to use the summit to continue creating a movement of disciple making disciples not only in RDU but throughout the world. You see we always say that we want to be a people who are willing to do whatever it takes to reach all people. And this facility becoming a reality is a result of you, you Summit Church, taking hold of that vision. You see, it's because of your generosity, in many cases your extravagant generosity, that this is happening. This facility that we're in is a tangible result of you putting Jesus and his mission first through your generosity. I know that many of you have sacrificed in this facility that by God's grace is gonna reach thousands of new people here in the Triangle. It is a result of that faith-filled Jesus first sacrifice. You know, when I look at these classrooms and our kids are in our student area and I see the parking lot and our new seats that are behind us, I don't see stuff, I don't see fresh paint. What I see are the students and the kids and the husbands and the wives and the marriages that are gonna come to know Christ, that are going to be healed, the broken, that are gonna come here to find healing, the hopeless that are gonna come, come and find hope. We wanna see disciples growing in the faith here and we see eternity being impacted and the kingdom of God being advanced here through the Summit Church. Hey, amen, John. That sounds like a start of a pretty good sermon right there. You know, if I were to add one thing to that list, and I promise not to always come behind you and correct, but if I were to add one thing to that list, just one, it is that I see, I see members being sent from this auditorium. I see missionaries who came in here first, maybe as people who didn't even know the gospel, but hear it, have their life changed, and then get commissioned right here from this stage to go from RDU to somewhere in the world on one of our church plants or to take the gospel to one of the farthest ends of the earth. I see the next wave of businessmen and women that are in businesses right around this area, grasping the importance of being sent, realizing that God gave them what he gave them um, to, to leverage for the kingdom, and then taking their businesses overseas with the intent of making a kingdom impact. Yeah. God truly, truly does continue to do more than we could ever ask or imagine here. And Summit family, we just want to thank you for your faith. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for putting Jesus first. Thank you for how you choose to live your lives for the glory of God. And we pray and ask that may God continue to add to his number daily through the Summit Church. Standing next to Pastor John in that video, I feel strangely small, uh, which is not uh, usual. In fact, little known fact of the, uh, so that actually, they had me standing on a box and I still was shorter uh, than him. So 
Y'all need to pray for me because I got that. I mean, he's got this beautiful Fabio hair, and I just, you know, I got this, this Tom Cruise complex. So anyway, y'all, the Capitol Hills campus is, um, is, is not far away, and it is just one other way that God is, uh, continues to show this hand of grace in the church uh, to make us a blessing to the peoples here in the Triangle. Uh, I am excited to tell you this morning that we have set an official launch date for the services at Capitol Hill. Now, I, Capitol Hills, I need to give you a caveat, and you got to promise to mind this caveat, and that is that it is a live construction site, which means that things can change, okay? Uh, we, you just never know how things work out, but um, right now, the official launch date has been set for October 5th and 6th, which is just a few weeks away, and we will be, Lord willing, launching that weekend. Uh, in case you didn't pick it up from this video, here's why we do these campuses. It's not to build an empire. It's not because we like big, beautiful buildings in the triangle. It is because we are committed to reaching doing whatever it takes to reach all people in the triangle, to make the gospel accessible to them. We are committed to following the Holy Spirit where he leads us, and this is where we feel like he has led us. And by the way, we really do mean all people in the triangle. Our summit in Espanol campus, which meets here at Briar Creek on Sunday mornings, is going to be adding, in addition to the services here, a 5.30 Saturday service at Capitol Hills as well. You know, we said years ago that we were going to prioritize reaching people, do whatever it takes to reach people, and follow the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is where we believe that God has led us now. We are excited about this step, and we are even more excited about the things that God is going to do in the future. So these are exciting times. Amen? Amen. All right. Good. Romans chapter 11, if you got your Bible, hope that you have it this weekend, Romans chapter 11. And if you got your Romans journal, hope that you continue to bring that page 66 in your Romans journal. Y'all, I feel like I've said this a lot in this series, but this chapter is really, really difficult. Um, uh, and maybe the most difficult of the ones we've looked at thus far. I told you at the beginning of the series that for years I have been nervous about preaching through the book of Romans uh, and quite frankly have avoided it for 16 years. Um, this chapter in large part is one of the reasons why I have been nervous about preaching through Romans. It's got all this confusing stuff in it about, about who the true Israel is and how God is going to graft into, uh, into the vine uh, Gentiles in their place and um, uh, how we, you know, what all the, and you're just not sure really, I mean, like, I'm even sure what Paul means here, and I'm definitely not sure how any of it actually applies to me or changes my life. I found that the pastors who do preach through the book of Romans, which unfortunately, Unfortunately, it's not very many, but the ones that actually do preach through the book of Romans, that a lot of them skip 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, and then the ones that preach 9 through 11 will a lot of times skip chapter 11. And just one example here, I heard a guy talking about his church. He said that their pastor was working his way through the book of Romans, just like I'm doing. He said, when we got to chapter 11, he said, the pastor stood up and said, listen, I'm just not sure what's going on in Romans 11, and I'm having a hard time seeing how it would be relevant for us or edifying. He said, and next week we've got vacation Bible school and the week after that student camp. So we're just going to take the morning to pray about those things and I'll see you back next week and we'll pick up with Romans 12. So that's one way to deal with it. Uh, I remember in the church I grew up in, every once in a while, the pastor would stand up and say, this morning we're going to have a testimony service. And people would just come up from the audience and share a word of testimony. As I got older, I, I learned, you know, I figured out that this was just his way of saying, I didn't have time to prepare a message this week. And so we're going to let you do the talking. Uh, every, every once in a while, we would do a thing called a singspiration. Is there anybody in here, rural Baptist church enough to know what that is? Um, Singspiration was where we would call out numbers from the hymnal of our favorite hymns 
like request, the pianist would play them and we would sing them for the entire morning service. So bottom line is, if I start bombing, we might just turn to a singspiration this morning, okay? So Brandon, you ready? I'll just call you. In fact, you just make a decision to come on up here and start playing, and I'll know that it's time for me to be done, okay? All right, listen, I can sympathize with those pastors who skip these chapters. Some scholars even say that chapters 9 through 11 function like a historical footnote that Paul inserts only for the Jews, but it's mostly irrelevant for us. They say the gospel logic of the book of Romans, you remember Paul's been building this gospel case. They say the gospel logic um, at, you know, stops at the end of Romans eight and then just picks back up in Romans 12. And they say you can actually skip nine through 11 without losing any of the progression. Um, but I disagree. By the way, I'm just noticing on the live stream that I have these black right, words right here written. This is not a cool new tattoo, um, but I was baptizing this morning at North Raleigh and I couldn't remember everybody's name. So I wrote them right here. Um, so don't, I don't wanna get emails about, I don't think you should get tattoos because it's a bad influence. So all right, um, I disagree. I disagree with the, um, not with the tattoos, but with uh, the interpretation that says nine through 11 is not important. Um, it's like I said, when we started chapter nine, remember this, I said, Paul in the gospel logic seems to recognize that when he gets to all these glorious promises in, in Romans 8, remember those? Um, you know, all those that God uh, foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, those he called, those he called, those he justified, those he justified, those he glorified. Uh, well, you know, um, uh, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. When he gets to all these glorious promises, he knows that the thinking person is saying, what about the Jews? I mean, weren't the Jews also God's chosen people? And clearly they've fallen away. Clearly they've been separated from the love of God. They crucified Christ. And so how is this not a failure on God's part? And this is where it gets really relevant for us. If God failed with them, how, do we, how can we be sure he's not gonna fail with us also, right? I mean, if you read the promises in the Old Testament, they read like unconditional promises. Unconditional meaning I'm gonna do it regardless of what you do. You read Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna make you a great nation and I'm gonna bless your nation with salvation. And not only are you gonna know me, you're gonna become a blessing to all the other nations and you're gonna teach them about God also. There's no if or maybe or might, or if you do this, I'll do that. It's just a promise, it's unconditional. By the way, to drive that point home, just a couple chapters after Genesis 12, God has Abraham do this ceremony that, that demonstrates that. Um, he, they, they do this um, back in those days. It seems strange to us, but it was common in those days. If you were doing something really, really important, a really important covenant, um, uh, you would take animals. And so God has a, uh, uh, Abraham take three animals and cut them in two and put them on either side of a little ditch so that their blood runs down into the ditch. And the way that you would do the covenant is both parties of the covenant would walk through the blood. So the blood would splash up on their robes. And if we were demonstrating that if I fail to keep up my end of the, of the bargain, may my blood flow like, like, like this blood, right? When it comes time for Abraham and God to pass through this river of blood, um, God puts Abraham, Genesis 15 says, into a deep sleep and God goes through it by himself. And the meaning is God saying, Abraham, I'm not only gonna make myself responsible for my side of the covenant, I'm gonna be responsible for your side of the covenant as well. That's unconditional. And now you get to Romans nine and here you've got Israel falling away. And so Paul knows you're asking, well, if God reneged on these unconditional promises to Israel, how do we know he's not gonna do the same thing with us? Chapter 11 is Paul still wrestling with this question. 
in the first 16 verses, he's going to give you his answer to that question. And then in the next six verses, he's going to give you a very important warning that comes out of reflection on that answer. And then the final nine verses of the chapter is where Paul just kind of bursts into an explosion of praise as he, as he meditates and reflects on that answer. This weekend, we're only going to look at the, at the answer that Paul gives and the warning that flows out of it. And next weekend, Lord willing, we will pick up with this explosion of praise all by itself because it's pretty fantastic, okay? So here we go. The question, first 16 verses. Here's how I would summarize the question. Has God failed in keeping his promise to make Israel a blessing to the nations? Or you could say the Gentiles. By the way, if you hear the word Gentiles, anytime it's in the Bible, anytime I'm using it, it just means anybody who's not an ethnic Jew. That's everybody who's not an ethnic Jew is classified as Gentile. Has God failed in keeping his promise to make Israel a blessing to the nations? Chapter 11, verse 1. Here's how Paul says. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. Paul then offers four, let's call them arguments, to prove that God has not reneged on these Genesis 12 promises. The first we'll call the, let's call it the Paul argument, verse 1. Paul says, I'm a Jew. In fact, all the apostles are Jews, and God has not only saved us, he's using us mightily to establish his church. So God hasn't totally forsaken his people because look at us, right? The second we will call the election argument, verse 2. Paul says, it's like I explained to you in chapter 9, since the very beginning of the Israelite nation, we see that not every son or daughter of Abraham truly belonged to God. You remember this from chapter 9? Paul uses two examples. He said Abraham had two sons. One was named Isaac. One was Ishmael. Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was not. Isaac has two sons. One is named Jacob. One is named Esau. Jacob embraces the promises personally for himself. Esau rejects them. These represent, Paul says, two kinds of Israelites who have always existed in Israel. There are those who know God personally and embrace the promises for themselves and those who don't. The true Israelites, Paul says, the ones that God foreknew are not those who inherited the biological DNA of Abraham. The true Israelites are those who embraced his faith. So Paul concludes there in verse two, no, God has not rejected the people that he actually foreknew. All the Jacobs and all the Isaacs whom he had an actual relationship with, he has not forsaken. Third, he's gonna give what we'll call the Elijah argument. Again, verse two, don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? What was God's answer to him? In the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Elijah who prophesied at a very dark time in Israel. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were on the throne and Israel was was very far away from God. And so in a moment of just total like despair, Elijah finds himself on top of Mount Horeb and he is saying, lamenting to God, God, I'm literally the only one left. Nobody else in all of Israel follows you. It's just me. What is God's answer to him? You see it there in verse four, Paul quotes it. I have left for myself 7,000 people you don't even know about who have not bowed down to Baal. There's 7,000 people out there, Paul, you're unaware of. And I have preserved a remnant that's going to follow me. In the same way, Paul says, even today, God has preserved a remnant of his people. Sure, you might look at the Israelite nation as a whole and say they've rejected God, but look closer, look closer, and you'll see that God's been doing something you didn't even know about. And he preserved a remnant that still belonged to him. And y'all, I'll tell you, if you look at Christian history, that has always been true. Not only was the early church birthed by Jews, throughout Christian history, there has always been a a small but thriving Jewish Christian community. 
Now, if you're into philosophy or literature, people like Mortimer Adler or Simone Veil. If you're into more popular culture, people like Jay Sekulow or Bob Dylan, Josh Groban, Kathy Lee Gifford. Uh, by the way, I'm not verifying, vouching for the authenticity of the faith of any of these. I'm just saying um, these are people who are Jewish people who have claimed Christ. Um, he says this has always existed, always existed throughout history. Uh, if I could just throw this in real quick right here. What Paul is indicating to you, and this is something you can take away from this, just when you think it's over, just when you think like the chapter is closed, just when you find yourself in a situation where you're on Mount Horeb saying, God, it's over. Like the family's lost and the friends are gone and, and, and nobody's left but me. You should open your eyes, Paul says, because God's been doing some surprising things probably that you're not even gonna know about it. I mean, think about it for a minute. If you had been around in the first century and somebody had told you that, that pretty soon the seat of uh, the seat, the center of Christianity was gonna be the Roman empire. What would you have said? You said, yeah, right. And then it happened, right? And then in the fourth century, you know, after Rome has basically converted to Christ, if somebody had told you the new center of the Christian world is going to be the English speaking world, which by the way, at that point was a bunch of savage tribesmen who were barbarians, right? If you heard that, you'd be like, no way, way there's people can do anything. And then if you'd have been around in Europe, English speaking Europe in the, you know, in the, the middle ages and somebody had told you one day, the center of Christianity, when Europe began to go secular and, and liberal, the center of, of Christianity was going to be this little upstart country that nobody had heard about, didn't exist at the time of Paul on a continent nobody had even discovered yet, um, that it was going that, that the United States was going to become the, the largest send, mission sending country that had ever existed. You would have said, that's crazy. Even today, you look around and you see that the church, they say, is growing fastest in China, Latin America, and Africa, um, in places that we thought were closed countries and places that are very dangerous. What is God just saying? Look, just when you think it's done, just you open your eyes because I'm doing something you don't even know about. It's like a friend of mine says, if you're not dead, God's not done. And God is working and he's doing something. He's going to keep this promise. So you got this Elijah argument that God's probably doing a lot more than you, than you realize. Um, fourth, um, and, or, and finally, oh, and before I get to that, um, Paul uses these two reasons. He says, see, God has not forsaken his people. He saved me, I'm a Jew, apostles are Jews. Number two, um, he is, uh, what was number two? Um, uh, oh yeah, um, the ones that God has elected and foreknown, he is, he's always been, and then, and then number three, he's got a remnant that's going. All right, but then verse 11, Paul hears you again, because he knows you and he knows you're cynical. Um, he hears you say, well, wait a minute, Paul. Paul, it, it, really, that's it? That's the fulfillment of all those promises is you got this little tiny Jewish community, the occasional Bob Dylan or Josh Groban and the occasional song about you lift me up. And that's basically the Jewish contribution to Christianity. Because when, when I read the Old Testament, it sure sounds to me like Israel as a whole is gonna respond to God. Sure sounds like the Jewish people are gonna be known as God's people. And I guess it just looks like God was not able to pull that off. And I guess that makes us Gentiles like God's consolation prize. Or we Gentiles were his you know, safety school. You know, safety school, like, you know, the school that you know you can get into if you don't get into the school you want to get into. Uh, like when you talk to a Duke student and they're like, UNC was my first choice, but I couldn't get in there, so I went to Duke, okay? Um, <laughs> your safety school. Are, are the Gentiles like God's safety school where he was like, I really wanted the Jews, but I don't know, I couldn't get the Jews, so I'll just settle for the Gentiles. Is that what happened? All right, so Paul verse 11 gives his, his fourth and final answer. Hey, we'll call it the future argument. Paul explains that Israel's response to the gospel is going to unfold in three major stages. This is pretty awesome, by the way, because it gives you a vision of the future. Stage one, verse 11, would, you would describe it this way. 
All right, these are Israel's response to the gospel. Israel's mostly negative response to the gospel opens a door for Gentiles to hear and to believe. See verse 11, by their transgression, by their rejection of Christ, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The fact that Israel missed the gospel opened up a unique opportunity for Gentiles to believe. I mean, think about it. If you go through Acts, you'll see that the gospel goes into a new city on on basically a standard progression. Um, the apostles arrive in a new city and the first place they go is where? Always go to the Jewish synagogue and that's the first place they preach the gospel. The reaction is always mixed. There's always a handful of Jews that believe, but for the most part, the Jews reject the gospel. And so the apostles are driven out of the synagogue into the streets and the marketplaces where they encounter a lot of Gentiles who are willing to believe. And within a hundred years, Christianity has become a multi-ethnic, mostly Gentile movement where the Gentiles are now the core of the church. Just imagine, Paul says, if in every town at the synagogue that the Jews pre- that the apostles preached at, imagine the synagogues had all responded enthusiastically. Well, the apostles might have grown complacent, right? And they might have not ever gotten out into the street, not ever gotten the gospel to the Gentiles. So God has arranged it so that even the Jewish hardness to the gospel has turned out to a unique opportunity for the Gentiles. Well, that's going to bring us to stage two, right? Stage two, Gentile believers make Israelites jealous. Look back in verse 11, right? Because of this transgression, salvation came to the Gentiles and that made Israel jealous, This is not bad jealousy, like she's prettier than me or he's smarter than I am. Um, This is a good kind of jealousy where somebody has something, you know, that you really ought to have yourself. Um, uh, For example, if my teenage kids, if they rejected my wife and I and ran away from home, and so my wife and I, you know, um, brought in some homeless kids into our family. And after several months, my kids, you know, make their way back and they're cold and lonely and hungry. And, and they come to, to, to our, um, our window on Christmas morning and they look through the window and there they see around the Christmas tree, they see these, these kids, they don't even know who are opening these beautiful gifts and, and just experiencing the love and warmth of being a part of our family. And, and in their hearts, those cold and lonely and hungry, they're like, that's supposed to be me. That's supposed to be me, and I miss that kind of family. God says that's what is happening to the Jews right now. There is a sense in which Jewish people resent. They resent the closeness that Christians feel toward their God, the God of the Old Testament, the way we talk about the God of David and the way we use the Psalms and the way we we love Moses. And, And there's a sense in which there's a jealousy that's being provoked that says, hey, this God has brought me into his table, and I'm sitting here, and I'm feasting, and you could be here also. And that eventually is going to lead, Paul says, to stage three. At some point in the future, Israel as a nation is going to come back to God. And that's going to, that's going to spawn a worldwide gospel movement like nothing we've ever seen. This Gentile love of the gospel is eventually going to cause Israel as a nation to turn back to God. See verse 25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Right? They rejected the gospel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's us right here. Right? And in this way... All Israel is going to be saved. This is going to cause the whole nation at some point to, the whole whole community of ethnic Jews to turn back to Christ. Now, one clarification. When he says all Israel, he doesn't necessarily mean every single Jewish person alive. And he's not talking about the nation state that's, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu and all that kind of stuff. What he is just saying is that there's going to be such a movement among Jewish people toward the gospel that you could think of it as a national conversion. And this national conversion, Paul says, is going to in turn spawn a worldwide movement of the gospel. See verse 12? This is such an awesome verse. If the Jewish people's transgression, 
If their rejection of Christ brought riches for the world, and if their failure brought riches for the Gentiles, us, then imagine what their embrace, imagine what the fullness is going to bring. Paul's like, look, God promised to make Israel a blessing to the nations. And they have been. Even ironically, their rejection of the gospel blessed the Gentiles because it allowed us a chance to hear the gospel and be saved. And Paul's like, if their rejection of the gospel brought us blessing, imagine what their embrace of the gospel is going to do. If their disobedience brought blessing, imagine what their obedience is going to bring. Now, unfortunately, Paul didn't go into a lot of detail here about how this massive Jewish conversion to Christ is going to, how it's going to lead to a worldwide movement. Uh, the book of Revelation, last book in your Bible, says that in the latter days, what some Christians call the tribulation, God is going to save 144,000 Jewish people, and he's going to appoint them as his worldwide witnesses, who are in turn going to lead the largest gospel movement that has ever been known in the world. Many scholars say that, that, that what Paul is saying here in Romans 11 points to, to that, and what, he, what John says in Revelation points to this national return of Israel. Whatever it looks like, this is going to happen, Paul says, because God will indeed fulfill his promises to the Jews just like he gave them. So even though, he concludes, even though Israel on the whole has rejected God, they are still loved because of the promises to the patriarchs, because God's promises were unconditional and God's gracious gifts and his calling are irrevocable. So to sum all this up, has God failed to keep his promise to make Israel a blessing to the nations? Paul's answer, absolutely not. And here's how I know that, he says, because a lot of Jewish people have been saved, like me. And even their rejection, even Jewish rejection of, of the gospel has led to Gentile salvation, but the best is yet to come. Now, before I move on from this to the warning, I just want to point out one incidental thing that you can learn from Paul in all this. Here it is, okay? Here's your takeaway. Never, ever, ever give up on the people that God has placed in your life to reach for the gospel and the ones that he's put on your heart, ever. Even after facing rejection after rejection from the Jewish people, Paul never gives up hope. Even after being driven out, even after being persecuted at the point of death, Paul never gives up hope that his Israelite friends can be saved. There was a passage we skipped over in Romans 9, and I promised you that we were going to come back to it. Boom, here we go, all right? Romans 9. Here's Paul, Paul opens this section. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness on the Holy Spirit. Hang on. Um, that's very unusual for Paul, what he just did right there. He is qualifying his statement in three ways to tell you that he's telling the truth. Paul's normal kind of mode of writing, his motif is, I'm an apostle, I speak for God, of course I tell the truth, you shut up. That's Paul's general attitude when he writes. Here, he does something totally unusual, and he, he kind of takes the glasses off, puts the pens down, puts the notebook down, and says, listen, what I'm about to tell you, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not posturing. This is, this is what is going on in my heart. Verse two, I have great sorrow and un." ceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. You know what that means? I'd turn in my salvation if I could. I would go to hell forever if it meant that my brothers, my family, my friends in Israel come back to faith in Christ. This was not some academic thing for Paul. Paul said, if I could, I would go to hell itself if that meant they would come back. And he never gave up hope and he never stopped working. My question for you is, who is like that for you? Who is that person, who is that group of people that God has put on your heart that you would say, I sense that kind of anguish? I know that my kids are certainly like that for me. And if one day one of my kids walks away from 
God, then yeah, I'll be the one that's up early and up late praying for them to come back. I, I know of a guy I just heard about it. I think he's at the North Raleigh campus for 27 years has been praying for his daughter who had walked away from God and she just came back to faith in Christ. And he is like a brand new man. It's amazing. Right. And that'll be some of us, right. And some of you parents are going to be like that. You never give up and you just keep praying and you keep believing. Some of you are going to start to feel like that about groups of people. John Knox, the famous um, reformer in uh, Scotland, 16th century, saw one of the largest European awakenings of the gospel of anybody. 16th century, John Knox was known by his friends to pray with loud laments and tears, God, give me Scotland or I'll die. And his friends who knew him well said he meant every single word of that. I know missionaries today from our church who right now are facing unbelievable obstacles in the places where they are, but they won't leave. No matter how hard it gets, they just won't leave because they have this kind of anguish in their heart. And they say, I don't care how hard it is. I've got to see these people come to faith in Christ. Friend, I just want to ask you, who is that one for you? Who is your many? Don't give up on them. You understand God put them on your heart for a reason. That anguish in you for their soul is divine. And Paul says the good news is that those people, your friends, your family is loved because of the promises God gave to you. He said, these Jewish people who rejected Christ, they're still loved because of the promises God gave to the forefathers. Your friends are loved because of the promises God gave to you. In fact, here's one Psalm 126, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. It means you're out there and just weeping and praying and you will one day walk in joy. Those who go forth with weeping will doubtless come again, bringing the harvest with them. That's Paul's answer to the question, has God cast off his people? He says, absolutely not. He will fulfill every word of his promise. That leads number two to the warning. We whom God grafted in should never get haughty or grow complacent in our salvation. Watch what he does here, verse 17. Some of the branches were broken off and you, that you're a wild olive branch. How's that for your description, okay? You wild olive branches. You were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich. Oh, by the way, I think it's a, a good tattoo idea. So I always like to throw these in. So if you want something on your back, I get that. Um, we're grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. I don't boast that you're any better than those branches. Let me, in case you're not a horticulturalist or you're not a gardener, which I am not, here's how this works. They say that certain kind of plants and trees, if you got bad branches on them, uh, they don't bear fruit or they're sick or you know, something's wrong with them, you can cut them off. And then what you can do is you can take a branch from another tree, sometimes a different kind of tree, and you can graft it in to where the old branch was broken off and you can bind it together. And what happens is this new branch, which was not originally part of the tree, begins to draw life and sustenance and nutrients off of the root of this other tree. And Paul says, that's what's happened in Israel is there was all these branches on the Israelite tree that weren't bearing fruit. And so God just cut them off. All the Esau's and all the, uh, all the Ishmael's and then God just cut them off. And then in their place, God has started to graft in Gentiles who are now drawing spiritual life and eternal life and, and fruit. They're drawing it from the root, which has previously belonged to the Jewish tree. And so what he says now, verse 20, they were broken off because of unbelief. But you Gentiles, you've been grafted in by faith. So don't be arrogant. You should beware. Because if God didn't spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare you either if you do the exact same thing. In other words, if God was willing to cut off branches from his own original tree because of their unbelief, 
Why would he, why would we who have been grafted in somewhat unnaturally into this Jewish tree, why would we ever think that we can get away with the very things that got them removed? And what was it that got them removed? Compromise, taking their salvation for granted, giving lip service to God and going through the religious motions while their hearts really didn't belong to him. Y'all, so many Christians today, particularly here in the South, this would be the description that Paul would have of them, right? Culturally, they're Christians. Ask them if they're Christians. They say, absolutely. Ask them what tree they belong to. I belong to the Christian tree. They think church is a good thing. They're usually involved somewhere. Maybe they're involved here. Maybe at this campus. But you look closely at their lives and they're not really committed. I mean, they're not involved in any ministry. They don't sacrificially give. They couldn't tell you the last time that they told somebody about Jesus. In fact, their church attendance is probably pretty sporadic. Once every, I don't know, four, six weeks, two months, they show up. They just can't get here the other times because they are so busy. Oh man, just having kids and just so busy. And plus the in-laws have a beach house and it would just be bad stewardship to not go down there whenever the weather's good. And so yeah, we get here every once in a while. Plus it's just hard to get kids out of the door on a Sunday morning. Am I right? Like to get our kids up and get in, that's just hard. Nobody ever talks about the fact you do it five days a week without fail to get them to school, but you can't do it on Sunday because, oh, it's just so hard right? And so you're like, oh, I just don't know. Church is a good thing. I don't want to be out of the tree, but I'm just not that committed. Do you not understand he's describing you here? Or they believe in what I call Prozac Jesus, which is the Jesus that makes you feel calm when things are going wrong. You turn to him in a jam. He makes you feel better. He speaks, you know, positive, you know, uh, affirming truths into your life, but you've never offered your life to him as a disciple. And you are not fully surrendered to him. Ask any of these people in the South that they are saved and they'll say, oh yeah. And they'll tell you about a time that they prayed a prayer and got baptized, but they just don't live their lives as if Jesus was Lord. Are these not like the branches that God removed from Israel? I'm especially concerned, I think here for children who grow up in churches like this one. You're raised in a Christian family and that means that at some point you got saved because that's just what's expected of you. And you live up to expectations and it was expected to get saved and all the kids around you were getting saved and they got baptized. So you got to get baptized. And so you did it. And you went through the motions on, on that. And, and, and because you're part of this community, you probably avoided most major sins, right? Like I just didn't know that many drug dealers growing up. I knew that they were out there, but I just, you know, they didn't come over to my house all the time. And I always say the only drug problem I had growing up was getting drugged to church three times a week, right? So I avoided most major sins but in your heart, you know, he's not really Lord. You know, it's not really full surrender. That was me growing up. Paul says, wake up. If this is what God did to the sons and daughters of Abraham, it's what he's going to do to you. Are you really so foolish and arrogant to think that you can treat the things of God casually or with such disdain and God will let you get away with it? What did he do with Israel? He removed the branches. I even had a girl tell me one time, I accepted Jesus as my savior when I was 13, but I just haven't accepted him as Lord yet. I'm my friend, that category doesn't exist. You can't bifurcate Jesus. He's not a la carte Jesus, build a bear Jesus, where you take the parts of him that you like and assemble the deity that, that does you good, right? You don't do that. He's either the Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Sometimes Christians use a, a perverted version of the doctrine of eternal security to assure themselves they belong to God. You know the doctrine of eternal security? The doctrine of eternal security says this, once saved, always saved. That is, once you've been truly saved, you can never lose your salvation. Right, and you think, well, I got saved, I, I'm in it, and so I'm in. 
I think I've told you before, I had a guy at the gym I used to work out at. Um, I met uh, playing one-on-one basketball on the court. And uh, it was just me and him out there. Now, um, I'm going to give you a little description here. Don't judge me for the way I'm going to say this. I'm just telling you what was in my heart. It probably reveals that I, I, I think wrongly. But he didn't look like a Christian. I know, I know you shouldn't judge people by the outside, but he just didn't look like a Christian. And, um, I mean, he had hair, like, long hair down to his back. Nothing wrong with that, okay, but just paint a picture for you. He had tattoos over his entire body. You could not even t- see his original skin except for his head. Just tattoos everywhere. Nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, he uh, looked like he'd tripped and fallen face first into a tackle box. He had, like, little piercings, you know, several of them in his face. Nothing wrong with that. Um, he cussed. <laughs> You're like, this sounds like people that stand up and give announcements on the Summit Church on Sunday morning. Maybe, okay, but um, uh, he just paint you a picture. Uh, and he, he cussed, like, I mean, it was an art form. I mean, like, it, it was more than I'd ever heard somebody. He just, every other word was blank this, bleep that, you know, just, and, and, and so I'm thinking he's not a Christian. And, uh, and so we're, we're playing, and I start sharing my testimony with him. And I remember he grabs a ball, puts it on his hip, and he looks at me, and he goes, dude, are you trying to witness to me? And I was like, I don't know, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying anything. Uh, I, and he was like, are you, he goes, he goes, ah. Oh, he goes, that's awesome, man. I, for, I was surprised he knew the word witnessing because I was like, that's Christian insider talk. Like, how did you know that word? And, um, and he was like, oh, he goes, that's awesome. And nobody has tried to witness to me in years. He was like, I guess it's because of how I look. I was like, not me because I, I don't look at the outside. I look at the heart. So, um, <laughs> and uh, he, said, um, he said, yeah, he goes, he, goes I, I just, he says, you're wasting your breath. He said, he said, he said here's why. He said, um, he said, when I was 13 years old, I grew up in this little Baptist church. He said, when I was 13 years old, I went to youth camp and I got saved. He said, I don't mean like a little saved. I got way saved. He said, and I came back and man, I was the president of my youth group and I led FCA at my school and I went on mission trips and I memorized scripture and I was like Bible champion for like two years. He said, then I got into high school and I just decided, I don't know, I just, I want to put this on a back burner because I was having fun and God began to get less and less important. He said, then I went to college. His words were, I discovered sex. And I just decided that I wanted freedom in this part of my life. And so I just put my relationship with God completely on the back burner. He said, after a couple of years, I just didn't really believe in God anymore. He said, I'll be honest with you. It probably was my preferred lifestyle that was controlling what I believe. But however we got here, I'm an atheist now. He said, but here's what's awesome. Here's what's awesome. He said, he said I was saved at a Baptist church. Don't you go to a Baptist church? I said, man, I'm not saying anything else from this point on. Um, he, said, he, he, said, he said, at our Baptist church, we believe in eternal security. Once saved, always saved. He says, even if you're right and Jesus really rose from the dead, I'm still in. He goes, it doesn't matter because, you know, I, I, I was saved and so I'm eternally secure. So if you're right, I win. If I'm right, I still win. Now, what do you say back to that? What do you say? What, how do you respond? Is that what the doctrine of eternal security means? Does it mean that, oh yeah, you prayed the prayer and you're done, you're in. Look at what Paul says here. Just look at it just the way he wrote it, verse 20. Paul says that you will be kept if you avoid the unbelief that Israel had and if you stand firm by faith. If. Very similar to what the writer of Hebrews says. Look at this very closely. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Watch. For we have come to share in Christ... If indeed we hold our original confidence firm all the way to the end, in other words, only if you maintain your confession of faith and surrender to the end, are you going to be saved? And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, J.D., are you saying a person can start out saved and then lose it? Nope. Hang with me. I know this is a tad bit confusing. 
But there are way too many places in the Bible that teach you that once you are truly saved, you will never lose it. John chapter 10, Jesus said, when you're my child, I put you in my hand and nothing can ever separate you from my hand. You remember what we looked at at the end of Romans 8, where Paul said, all those that God foreknew, he predestined, predestined, called, called, justified, justified, glorified. There's no breaks in the links of that chain. And once you get on that train, you're going all the way to the station. So what you've got in the Bible, listen, are two seemingly contradictory truths. On the one hand, you've got the truth that once God saves you, you'll always be saved. On the other hand, you've got the truth that only if you endure to the end will you be saved. What do you do when you have two seemingly contradictory truths in the Bible? You put them together. And here's how that sounds, right? One of the essential marks of truly saving faith is that it endures to the end. If your faith endures to the end, that is evidence you had the salvation you could never lose. If it doesn't endure to the end, that means you never had it to begin with. The real doctrine of eternal security would read like this. Once saved, always saved. Yes, absolutely. But there's another part to this. It's also true once saved, forever following. It is true once saved, always saved. But it's also true that once saved, forever following, and if your salvation is real and sincere, you will hold on to it for the rest of your life. Saving faith is staying faith. You see, the evidence of saving faith is not the intensity of emotion at the beginning. The evidence of saving faith is his endurance over time. In fact, Jesus told a story to illustrate just this. The story was um, the, 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 the sower who goes out to sow the seed. He says, some seed fell on shallow ground. And as a result, it sprang up quickly. What does sprang up quickly mean? It means it showed fruit quickly, right? And all of a sudden you had, um, you had, you had flowers on the plants and, and it looked like, wow, this is amazing. Right? But then the sun came out and the weeds grew up and it choked the life out of it and the plants went away, they died, they disappeared. Here's a question. Do these represent saved people who lost their salvation? No. They represent unsaved people who for a while look like they're saved people. I see this happen all the time at church. I see people come in, man, they pray the prayer, they get baptized, they walk the aisle, they do what they're supposed to do. And for a few months, maybe even a few years, they're like in. And then it just fades. I see it happen when I speak at youth camps and college events. Man, you have somebody that just, man, they have this moment, they're in worship and their hands are up and it's just like awesome, awesome, awesome. And it just doesn't last. The evidence of saving faith is not the intensity of emotion at the beginning, but the fact that it endures over time. Think of it like a marriage. You don't judge the sincerity of a marriage vow by the lavishness of the wedding ceremony. You judge the sincerity of the marriage vow by the faithful commitment that follows it. A lavish ceremony without a faithful commitment would be a sham. When it comes to God, a lot of Christians are all ceremony and no marriage. I mean, imagine if on my wedding night after Veronica and I had gotten married, I, I looked at her and I was like, "Woohoo! that was awesome. That was fun. All right, I got a date, you know? <laughs> I'm so glad we've made this decision. I'm so glad this is a part of my life now, but I got to get out of here. I got a date tonight. And I don't go back to be with her and I don't live with her and I live with all my old friends and do all the things I used to do. You would say that kind of marriage is a sham. You come and pray in a prayer getting your grandmother to, you know, initial your Bible where you did it, you know, doing all these crazy, awesome things, and then not walking with Jesus as Lord is a sham. The evidence of saving faith is not that you had some emotional moment. The evidence of saving faith is that you're now walking as a surrendered disciple of Jesus Christ. So be cautious 
Paul says. Like the writer of Hebrews says, beware lest sins go unchecked in you and begin to choke out your faith. Beware of tolerating compromise. Beware being casual and complacent in your spiritual growth. Because here's what I know. Spiritual growth is a fight. I've heard it described like riding a bicycle, right? Uphill. If you're not pedaling, you're going backwards. There's no neutral. It's a fight. If you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. And my fear for many of you in this church is what Paul's seems to be for the people to whom he's writing here. That is that you just take it for granted and you're doing the very things that got Israel removed. You prayed the prayer, you went through the ceremony, you're like, I'm in the tree. I got my get out of hell free card from Jesus. And you like Prozac Jesus who comforts you and is your BFF. There's only one Jesus and it's Lord Jesus. And if he is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And his Lordship is not demonstrated by the confession of your lips. His Lordship is demonstrated by the obedience of your life. So let me ask you to consider what I often tell teenagers they need to consider. If we were to put you on trial for being a Christian and the only, for being a follower of Jesus, and the only evidence that we could submit was from your best friends whom you hang out with at school, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If the only evidence that we could submit is what your mother would say about your life at home, that's the only evidence, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Because I'm just gonna tell you right now, if your best friends at school or on the golf course or your spouse does not know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a follower of Jesus, then you probably aren't. If your mother could not stand up here or your spouse and give evidence that you're born again, it's probably because you haven't been. And Paul says, you need to wake up because the gospel's good news. But friend, if God removed those branches from Israel who didn't really walk with God and God removed those branches who didn't submit to his lordship, won't he also remove you? Therefore, you should consider God's kindness and his severity, both of them. Severity toward those who have fallen. This is not a game. God's kindness toward you. If you remain in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. I need you to grapple with the severity of the gospel. God's kindness is he will receive all who come to him and surrender and faith and humility. And God will resist those who come and use him like some kind of get out of free car. He's like, "Mm -mm. if I cut Israel off, I'll cut you off too. You playing games with God? You playing games with God? Maybe this morning it's time for you to draw a line in the sand and to say up until now, it's been Jesus is my savior, Jesus is my comfort, but I need to embrace him as Lord. I need to surrender my whole life to him. You feeling like you okay, like you prayed a prayer because you got baptized, but Jesus is not really your Lord? Let me ask you to bow your heads if you would. At all of our campuses, bow your heads with me. I just feel especially burdened that this morning I'm talking to a lot of people in this category. And this morning, you're going to draw a line in the sand. And you're going to say from here on out, he's going to be Lord Jesus to me. And I'm going to surrender to him. Because up until now, I haven't not really been his disciple. I've not been following him with total surrender. I'm going to actually do something a little radical, but I think it's important. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand up.
to signify that. I'm not asking you to do this to show everybody around you because I'm going to have everybody keep their heads bowed and eyes closed, which means most people are not going to see you. But I want this to be a defining moment for you. And yeah, sure, the people, three or four people around you, they're going to, they're going to know that you stood up. See, here, here's my reasoning in this. If you're serious about this and you can't even stand up right now to show it in a place like this, you're probably not really serious. Because if Jesus is going to become your Lord and you're going to follow him, you can show that in a place like this by just standing in a, a way that just a handful of people is going to know. I'm not going to embarrass you. You're just going to stand with every head bowed and I'm going to, to pray over those that stand. We've had people in just about every service that did this. So here's what I want you to do. If you're like, look, I've not really been living with Jesus as my complete Lord. I've not been living in total surrender. I want to stand right now to show that that, that changes right now today. Would you just stand up? Whether I can see you or not at the campus or not, just stand up all over this place. Just stand up. Stand up. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a minute. Father, I pray for every person who is standing. I knew you drew them here, God, because you were telling them to wake up. I pray, God, for those who are right now seated that know they should be standing. Don't let them rest, God, until they grapple with the severity of a God who does not play games. God, give those who are standing strength to make this a truly defining moment. I pray in Jesus' name. Keep your heads bowed, eyes closed. You can be seated. You can be seated, those, all of you. If you stood up at the end of the service, we're gonna have people down front. I want you to come. I want you to pray with one of them. I want you to kind of seal this with prayer. The person beside you knows, and maybe you guys need to talk about it also. Let me ask one other thing with your heads bowed. Some of you have never been baptized. You need to be, because this is the, the going public. For some of you that just stood up, you need to signify what you just stood up about by getting baptized. And so at the end of the service, I want you to come up and talk to one of these people down here, and they'll get you signed up so that in a couple of weeks you can get baptized. Maybe you weren't in the group. Maybe you were already fully surrendered, but you've never actually been baptized. And I want to invite you to come up also, because this is, it's time for you to go public with this. At the end of the service will be down here, and let's just make this a truly defining moment. Father, we have decided to follow you. No games. You know what's in our heart. And by God's grace, no turning back. We pray in Jesus' name.